0: I think a critical part of what we do is to be truly other-oriented. You can't do this job well if you need the credit and you need to be at the front in the spotlight. You really have to want others to succeed and gain your satisfaction from their success. So I I do feel uh, lucky. I guess that's hardwired into who I am.
1: I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company, and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. John Reed Doddick, fondly known as JRD, is the chief people officer at AlphaSense. When it comes to culture, the JRD is arguably at the top of the HR profession. Everyone understands the importance of having a good culture, but JRD knows what it takes to get it right. And that's something that not everyone realizes. As JRD says, some companies have a culture they want, but it's not actually the culture they need. Finding that match is essential to a thriving company. So how does an organization go about finding the culture they need? Let's get the answer straight from the guy who knows it best. Let's dive right in. All right. John Reed Doddick, welcome to the show. I am so excited for so many reasons, and I'm not going to put any pressure on you, but a couple of months back, we did a poll to our HR community, and we said, well, who do you want on this show? And guess whose name came up more often, or the, the most often, I should say? Jackie canny Jackie Canney. <laughs> so, no pressure. I'm really excited. I'm really glad that we were able to make this happen. I don't know how we're going to do this in one episode. It's going to be a goal of mine, or maybe not. I'm there. No pressure. I think we should just talk. Let's let the conversation go where it goes. And to kick this off, I'd love for you to kind of give a, a synopsis about who you are, what you're doing.
0: And if you don't mind, just give a little overview about AlphaSense. Sure. So, I. Born and raised in Canada, grew up in a little farm town, 2,900 people. My dad was the town barber. My first girlfriend I met at the Halloween dance in 11th grade, and we have been together ever since. So I'm uh, very fortunate in that regard. Started life as a lawyer at your basic large law firm. Had a chance to move in-house with a client, which was Reuters, and spent a good part of my career at Reuters, including transitioning into HR partway through that. I have been very fortunate to work at various companies doing really interesting work with really interesting people. And my latest role as Chief People Officer at AlphaSense, I've been here since February and really thrilled about it. AlphaSense is, we are are small, so we're about 300 people. They did a Series B funding round last summer, but it was led by Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google. And it does AI-powered search for premium business information. We are growing very quickly. And I was brought in along with other scale executives to help the path kind of to and through an IPO over time. So it's a great company, great founder and CEO in Jack Coco, who I'm really enjoying working with. So that's a quick overview of of who I am and uh, where I am right now.
1: Right. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. And I think they picked the right person to put at the helm in the people position. And we're going to talk about why you're the right guy to do that and what you're going to uh, roll out in a little bit. Well, thank you. All right. So I got a portion of this show that I call Rapid Fire. And Rapid Fire is just to couple quick questions just to kind of get you going. And then from there, I want to roll into more of what what I call the main segment where we're going to get under the hood and uh, maybe we'll talk about why you are the guy for AlphaSense. Sound like a plan? Perfect. All right.
0: What was the last thing that made you laugh? Oh, this is an easy one. We have a six-month-old grandson named Monty and at six months, like every six-month-old, he has an infinite capacity for peekaboo. And I find I have an equal capacity when I'm with him now. So that's a beautiful source of laughter.
1: That is great.
0: I love the name Monty too, by the way. Do you know what the, how that name came to be? Oh my goodness. That is a beautiful story. So we, when the coronavirus hit, my daughter, our oldest, was fairly pregnant and, and had a due date of May 1st to deliver in a hospital in New York City. And we have a cousin who is senior at one medical and she basically called late march and said when we model out what may happen at the hospitals i think it's a real risk for cassie to deliver at mount sinai and she said in effect not to come to you with a problem without a solution my parents have a lake house in western massachusetts in a town named monterey i've found a hospital i found a obstetrician for you. And she really helped us make that transition. And the town was so welcoming and so lovely and such a a respite that to everybody's surprise, after our grandson was born, they announced that they had named him Monty in honor of Monterey. He ended up being featured in the local newspaper. There were people who dropped off beautiful gifts at the door who you never learned who they were. And we really, we feel deeply indebted uh, uh, indebted to the town.
1: That's such an awesome story. (laughs) John, you are loaded with stories, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, which I'm looking forward to doing as well. How do you say no? Uh, You've got to get a million asks a day.
0: How do you say no? Thoughtfully and with context is what I would say. And ideally, only after I've determined that there's no way to say yes. I think that the best HR teams are ones where business people are coming to you for solutions, and the worst ones are those who are perceived as blockers, where the joke, you know, the answer is no, no, what's the question? So I think I think it's important that you really explore solutions. Not to say that no isn't sometimes the answer, but it should be your your last response rather than your first.
1: It's so interesting. There's a gentleman who was on my other show. His name's Chris Voss, and he was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. And his whole thing on negotiating is essentially start with no. Oh, interesting. Yeah, It's a really interesting perspective and he supports it. I can't do him justice, but he he wrote, his book is fantastic. And he talks about how everyone just kind of defaults to no. So that's a great place to start is to get somebody to say no first. And then it's like, okay, cool. All right, let's go from there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but uh, it's a really interesting perspective. And my gosh, he saved a lot of people's
0: lives with his negotiation style. So I think it's working. Interesting, Yeah. (laughs) Do you have a happy place? Yeah, to be, to sound sappy, I would say it's any place when I'm with my family. But especially we have a a lake house on an island called Hecla Island in Manitoba, Canada. And that's definitely my happy place, especially in December in the wintertime and in front of the fire. Wow. All right. Are you an ice fisherman? I am not, but people in my family are. And there are often ice fishing shacks and other tents and things like that out on the lake in front of the house. It's avidly practiced there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I got a friend that goes up that way and literally he'll like camp out. He said, it's like houses out there, like on lake. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like a village at times. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. So who's opened the biggest doors
0: for you when it comes to your career? I could probably give a list of mentors and sponsors that I've had over the course of my career, but Probably the best answer is my wife, Darlene. I mentioned earlier, we kind of met at the Halloween dance in 11th grade. We went to the same college together, University of Manitoba. We got married a few weeks after that, moved to New York so I could attend graduate school at NYU. And she worked and helped me get through graduate school and law school. And then throughout my career has just been spectacularly supportive. I feel like I could not have had the Opportunities in my career without the support that she's provided. So I think that's probably the best and most truthful answer.
1: That's an amazing answer. And by the way, I can't wait to meet the person who's going to write the love story that's going to turn into a movie <laughs> of your life. I mean, it's really just to hear the support, the admiration, and obviously it's working from the the family that you've built, the businesses that you've been a part of, and the successes that you've had. I think that's something really special. That's a, a one plus one equaling three, in my book.
0: I feel uh, really, really fortunate.
1: Right. So, what do you? I mean, obviously, there's so many things that have gone into your success, but what would you, you know, identify as your "quote unquote"
0: superpower? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I probably like a lot of HR professionals. I do these psychometric assessments at different points, and and a favorite of mine is the Gallup Strengths Finder. Oh, and love that one. yeah, 1.0. Have you done the 2.0? I, I have. I have done 2.0, and. And one of, my, one of my top five is Maximizer. And they define Maximizer as you focus on what's good and try to transform it into something great. And I think that's been a defining focus throughout my HR career, whether that's talent or leaders, whether it's organizations or whether it's cultures. I think you have this deep drive to make things better. And I think that's probably what I would describe as, as a superpower.
1: That's a good one. And I guess it's very fitting being the profession that you have uh, morphed into.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I, in talking to other HR professionals and sort of sharing that, I think a critical part of what we do is to be truly other oriented. You can't do this job well if you need the credit and you need to be at the front in the spotlight. You really have to want others to succeed and gain your satisfaction from their success. So I I do feel uh, lucky. I guess that's hardwired into who I am.
1: Nice. Well, I, I would have answered if someone asked me what your superpower was. I'd say it was your storytelling
0: ability. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, the novelty may wear off, Adam, over time, but uh, I do enjoy sharing stories. <laughs> well, let,
1: let's talk about let's talk about stories for a second and and the, the power of the story. And are you a natural, or is this something that you've worked on? And if so, how have you used your ability to tell a story? to, whether it's to motivate people, whether it's to kind of get them to see the bigger picture
0: or however it is that you're using that superpower. So I, I definitely think it's something that can be learned. I do think that I am a natural growing up. I was very comfortable kind of telling stories, speaking my my sport, jokingly, in high school was debate. I did debate and speech. The first time I ever flew on an airplane was actually to represent Manitoba, at the Canadian Speech and Debate Championships in, in 12th grade. So that I sort of trained at that. I did debate in, in college. I also, throughout the 90s, my passion as a hobby was to be an amateur singer-songwriter country music. I, I would perform occasionally in coffee shops. I had a chance in 2000 to go down to Nashville and in the category of you can pay for anything. I got connected to the leader of the Grand Ole Opry band and recorded a CD of 13 country songs that I'd written during the 90s. And that really became a refined focus on storytelling and and the, the power of language and evocative language and stuff like that. I think I was fortunate to have that as a, a skill before I then really got into business and HR and leadership and developing others and realizing how critical storytelling is to great leaders. I'm
1: assuming you're a
0: Malcolm Gladwell fan. I, <laughs> I am a Malcolm Gladwell fan. I think okay. I've read most of what he's written and uh, listened to his podcasts and love his uh, love his uh, New Yorker magazine articles as well.
1: So he had a podcast, I don't know if you've gotten to it yet, but he talks about The Country singer if you Mm. haven't gotten if you haven't heard that one yet and they're always you you never know which one that's going to be because the title completely throws you off but i'll
0: have to get that to you i have listened to it it's a lovely podcast you're absolutely right i think that's part of his revisionist history correct Uh, that's exactly it so
1: all right i want to talk about when you and i were speaking last week or a couple weeks ago there was something that i thought was awesome that you shared with me that's something that you built it was called the JRD User Manual. Can you tell me about that? And and just for those who are listening, JRD stands for John Reed Doddick.
0: Yeah, that's my, my work nickname. Yeah, it's maybe to give the context for it. I spent a good part of my career at Reuters, was there a little over 16 years. And when I left there, I moved to AOL as Chief People Officer, as my first Chief People Officer role. And I was very fortunate that AOL engaged a talent firm called Crenshaw Associates, and in particular Nat Stoddard, who ran the firm at the time, to sort of help with executive transition. And part of that was hosting a half-day session that he called a new leader assimilation. And that had, in effect, three parts to it. So he had the HR leadership team come together without me present for a couple of hours and kind of facilitated their input on what sorts of things did they want to know about who I was, how I worked, how I led, that kind of thing. And then the second part, he had me come in on my own and they had a bunch of whiteboard and other sort of posters and things like that where, where all these um questions were. And, and we kind of worked through them and figured out what my answers were. And then the third part was kind of coming together and, and me me sharing that. And it was actually a great experience. I think it sort of accelerated the effectiveness of our team. But afterwards, I thought, what a great opportunity to try to reflect on who am I and how do I work. And so I just tried to capture that in a document. And, and over the years, I, I've used it when I've onboarded team members who, who work for me, or I've joined new companies, just as a way to say, Here's how I work, and the concepts are as tactical as how to reach me if it's something urgent. In my case, text me. That's what I'll pay attention to. How do I handle email? Right? I jokingly say I control email. I don't let it control me. Mm-hmm. So I'll answer email on my own time. Down to how do you like to make decisions? Right? And for me, it's sort of collectively with lots of input. And and so it's funny. There's this concept of the value in making explicit what otherwise would be implicit. And that was the. Sp- purpose of that exercise. And so I just tried to capture that and and have used it multiple times over the years.
1: I think it's genius and it makes sense. And I'm, I'm just so surprised that other people aren't doing it or more people haven't thought about it. It, it. It's really, I don't know if it was serendipitous or not, but after you had kind of, you and I had spoken, I went and I was uh, with a friend of mine who's got a business and, and his business is going to be He's been approached to to franchise a business. And what him and I, what I was helping him do is really essentially sitting down and, and creating a replicatable model. And you had to give a breakdown for every position. And what is the user manual for every single position? And how does this work? And I'm like, wow. And I was just telling him about the conversation you and I had and this user manual about how you operate. And it just, it's, I feel like it just makes things very clear, very easy. It helps to make a lot of decisions so that you don't have to make them. You've already made them. If whoever's following this user manual, you can get so much farther by knowing how to work with you.
0: Well, if I broaden it beyond that, we were talking earlier about really good psychometric assessments. There's something called Market Force, for example, which is one of these psychometric assessments that helps you understand different types. And we use them at WeWork. And initially, it was brought in as part of our sales organization and and I one of the things I liked about that was they used to say the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you and the platinum rule is do unto others as they want and part of the market force approach was to just really understand and observe others and what they were like and engage with them on that basis so for some people their path to trust is through relationship and you need to kind of invest in in the relationship. And for some, it, the path to trust is through competency. And so don't do a lot of small talk until you've convinced them that you know what you're talking about. You've proven yourself, that, those sorts of examples. So I think the notion of being attuned to the fact that people are very different, but they do have their styles, their ways of working and, and lor- learning how to orient towards them is a good way to do it.
1: I mean, it's great. I mean, it really takes the guessing work out. You're telling them how to get the best out of you. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and you know like you said, it's building that trust quicker and trust is the Holy Grail that's going to help you to move the needle. I, I love that. Yeah. So I'm told one of your other superpowers is your ability to create culture. that you are a culture creator. I'd love to get your perspective on wh- what does that mean to you and why in your humble opinion, is culture so important?
0: Well, first I'll start by saying I can't say I'm personally a culture creator, right? Like I I am someone who works with business leaders and we You're collectively maximizing. create we yeah, and we create culture together. So I, I think that's critical. But culture is the area where I've spent the largest chunk of my time as an HR professional. When I reflect over the past 20 years, I've led what often is called like the people and culture work stream in seven large scale transformations or growth efforts. So, for example, beginning in 2003 Reuters, we started a turnaround and transformation at Reuters that resulted in a sevenfold increase uh, in our share price over four years. And and I led the people and culture dimension of that. When Thomson bought Reuters and merged Reuters and Thomson Financial to create what became the 27,000 person Thomson Reuters markets division. I led that. Had a chance to work with a fantastic CEO, Bob Kerrigan, when he was CEO of Dun Bradstreet. He's now CEO of audible.com on the modernization of Dun Bradstreet. And then high growth experiences at WeWork and, and now AlphaSense. So I've, over the years, I've been immersed in culture and I guess refined my way of thinking about culture. And, and maybe I'll just run through that quickly so this is sort of my i've presented on this a few times so it'll sound a little rote but i the sequence i often follow is to say let's start with culture matters right like peter drucker famously said culture eats strategy for breakfast Mm -hmm. and i'll sometimes joke you know and lunch and dinner whatever you do you will get a culture it should be the culture you want even more importantly it should be the culture you need so if you're Lululemon and you read Laszlo Bock's book, How Google Works, and you want to do that kind of stuff, that's not the culture you need. You know, you're a retail experience. your You have a large concentration of yoga instructors, not software engineers, that kind of thing. So you want to make sure you're focused on the culture you need. And the culture you need should be the culture that is going to be a fundamental driver of your business strategy. And to illustrate that, it's probably helpful. I was experiencing this in real time when I was at at WeWork. So I was there four years in total. The first two years as Chief People Officer. And then the second two years, I actually helped well, founded a, a business that we called the Culture OS business for what we call the Culture Operating System. So, working with enterprise clients on how they can use workspace to transform their cultures. And in the course of that, I used to often say, use two illustrations. So, our largest client that I was working with was BP. And I would say, where we work, At that time, sort of the fastest growing, highest value startup in the world. Our culture, you would often describe it as entrepreneurial, scrappy, get shit done, that kind of thing, right? Right. Yet our business strategy had evolved from serving startups and freelancers to almost 50% of our revenue were large enterprises, and your culture needs to evolve when you're serving large enterprises. The the line I would often joke was, "If you're serving an enterprise, scrappy is crappy." Uh, you know, you now BP, who we were working with, they're a 110 year old energy company, and their culture was all about safety, control, hierarchy, failures not an option. We work with 10 year plans, and yet their business strategy was about transitioning from traditional energy to new forms of energy. They actually had to become much more entrepreneurial, agile, much more risk-taking. I mean, Karani got comfortable with this notion of fail fast and learn. And that's an example. In each case, WeWork needed to evolve its culture in order to serve its business strategy in effect, become more BP-like. <laughs> and BP needed to evolve its culture to serve its new business strategy becoming more entrepreneurial so that's the way to sort of think about the culture and how to apply it it's and i often say it's not just being a great place to work i think the that's necessary but not sufficient it's what's on top of that is more unique to you and more directly connected to your business strategy
1: interesting and and how do you roll something like this out how do you break this down
0: what do you do that's actually where this concept of the culture operating system emerged and At WeWork, we were focused on how do we evolve our culture in light of how our business strategy is evolving. And at the time, actually for a good part of my time there, I I worked directly for Miguel McKelvey, who was one of the two co-founders. And Miguel's title became chief culture officer at the point that I started to work for him. And he actually came up with the phrase culture operating system because I I was sharing with him my perspective on, on culture. And I said, look, fundamentally, culture is an output. And so what you need to do is when you've kind of defined the output you want, you're then working on what are the inputs. I often joke, the inputs are not ping pong, foosball, and free lunch. That's cultural confetti, has flash, but no real impact. The inputs are sort of deeper and more profound and more systemic. And it was funny, like a day or so later, Miguel kind of walked up to me and he said, I was reflecting on our conversation and he said, what if we called it the culture operating system? And and we kind of whiteboarded and, and collaborated around building out what that meant. And what we essentially put into practice and refined was there are eight critical inputs and you need to attend to them with design intent. So the first is purpose. What's your kind of vision, mission, values, brand? How do you talk about why you in the, you matter in the world and, and how do you help your people connect to, to that purpose? The second pillar is leadership. Your leaders in so many ways shape and influence and personify your culture. So how do you focus on developing your leaders to be able to kind of best represent your culture? The third is space. So your physical workspace has a profound influence on your culture. And that was what we ended up building this business around was having people realize how many design choices that you can make in your workspace to achieve cultural intent. And BP did some great work in this when we were doing that. The third, or fourth rather, is I refer to it as citizenship. So, your role in your communities can be a way that you shape and evolve your culture. And I, I joked at the, the start about Jackie Canney, who she's she is a good friend of mine, and, and I've known her since her, her time at Accenture. But she was when she was chief people officer at Walmart, she was sharing that they had kind of studied some of their highest performing stores and what were patterns that they could observe. And one of the patterns that they observed was in the highest performing stores, the store managers tended to be quite involved in the local community and would find ways to kind of bring local community groups into the stores, et cetera. So that's an example of how you can use your citizenship, your connection to the community to shape your culture. The fifth pillar is what we called connection. So these are just the nature of the relationships you nurture in person, uh, digitally, globally, when you're making connections across time zones, language, national differences, the Sixth component of the culture operating system is agility. Here, I just borrow the the saying that Jack Welsh used, I think, in the late 90s, high-performing companies are ones where the pace of change inside is faster than the pace of change outside. And so by agility, it's what is the sort of subsystem, all the things that allow you to move at pace with agility. So things like your budget process, your resource allocation, your goal setting, feedback mechanisms. How are you organized? What are the racy dimensions? How do you use even reward recognition? So that's the sort of subsystems that are agility. The seventh is talent. So this is sort of all things talent starting in the market with your employer brand and how do you express your culture in a way that attracts people to you your candidate experience your onboarding experience who gets promoted and why your learning offerings all the way down to sort of how do you handle terminations and how is your culture reflected back to you through your alumni whether it's a, a more structured alumni organization or the alumni organization that all of us have which is Glassdoor and linkedin and, and other ways that our alumni reflect on us and then and the final pillar of the culture operating system is what we call platform. So that's what are your systems, your processes, your tools, your policies. These are critical shapers of culture because they so impact your day-to-day experiences. So that's the culture operating system. And in effect, the whole concept is do the work of really focusing on your business strategy your business imperatives. What are the ways in which your culture needs to evolve to serve that and support that business strategy. And then you look to the culture S and you attend to all of those things so that with design intent, you're creating the output. Man, these are those are excellent.
1: Does it matter the order and is there an equal distribution to each? How does that work?
0: Uh, that's a great question. I think the best way to, to consider it is it's going to depend a little bit on, on kind of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. But but the thing that I often say is it's a system and maybe a lame metaphor. If you think of it as a car, is the engine more important than the tires? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But can you ro- drive the car without the tires? No. And so you will probably put a lot more time and effort, for example, into leadership, into all dimensions of talent, into all dimensions of agility, then you might into your citizenship efforts, for example, or you might into your space. But actually, if you see that they're all contributors and that they're a system, and if you're trying to do it with intent and making thoughtful choices, then you start getting, you really get this kind of multiplier effect.
1: Yeah. So for, for those people that are listening, is there a certain time, obviously the earlier the better, at what scale of an organization, do you recommend implementing these
0: principles? Again, a great question, Adam. Look, ideally from the very start, to me, one of the attractions of AlphaSense and and this opportunity was to go in to a company that I felt had great growth potential, great presence in the market, great product, and a very culture and people-oriented CEO, and be able to be part of the leadership team in shaping that culture as it grew. But I've also been involved in transforming large, established, older companies. And so you can sort of do it at any time. But the final thing I'll say on that is one of the reasons that that the phrase operating system I think is powerful is if you think of your culture as something that you're operating, right, like you're always attending to it and you're evolving over time, like you're going to enter different stages, your strategy is going to evolve and culture is is something that if you're constantly attending to it you're operating it and you're seeing it as a driver of your strategy and not something that you start and finish there's not like a program that you start and finish yeah it's interesting
1: the reason i ask is a gentleman i was actually speaking with earlier this week he worked for i can't remember if they're publicly traded or they're going to be publicly traded a private equity firm took him over mm-hmm. Loved the business it was highly profitable but the PE firm wanted to change their culture. And as a result of changing the culture, it ran the company into the ground. And it was, maybe they had done it well in previous organizations, run other portfolio companies, right? But I don't know if it was just too drastic or maybe it wasn't implemented properly, but it really just didn't work. And, and a lot of the leadership exited and uh, the company just didn't, it, it literally ran it into the ground.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's a tragic story. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. I'll jokingly say most culture efforts have relatively little impact because they stay at a surface level. You're putting values out, you're putting posters on the wall, you're holding events and stuff like that, but you're not addressing the sort of systemic multi- multi-dimensional aspect of it. And so typically culture efforts just don't succeed. That one sounds like, Unfortunately, it was highly successful, but in the wrong direction. So I'm sorry to hear that.
1: yeah, they they did hit their goal of changing it. I just <laughs> <better>. <laughs> So I don't know how familiar you are with Ray Dalio. He is actually, I think he's not the CEO anymore, but of a, a hedge fund, the largest hedge fund in the world called Bridgewater. And, sure. And yeah. Far, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a famous and he's got these 12 or 14 principles and, and they're very different than yours. But it's contentious in some degrees, like some people, you either love it or you hate it, but it's worked. It's hard to argue with the success that this guy has had, having been the largest and best performing hedge fund in the past, I
0: don't know, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, but that's I actually know that organization reasonably well because I love studying companies that have been so thoughtful about their own culture and and what they've done. And I've years ago I, I read his principles. I spoke with folks from there at some length. But that's actually a great example of the point I was making earlier about the culture you need, not the culture you want. Those principles were ideally tailored to that hedge fund that strategy. And also to Ray Dalio, in founder led organizations, culture is personality is culture. Often, you really have to be attuned to the founders personality. And so I think that putting those principles down, integrating them in a highly systemic way, I mean, they would never have called it the culture operating system. But when you look at the ways in which they attended to their culture, and he was an incredible, thoughtful architect of a really successful culture. Now, he then wrote a book. That doesn't mean every other company now should take those principles and it's going to work for them. And I think that's the critical thing is that you've got to really understand your business strategy, your context, the ways in which you're evolving. Because we're so different. Frankly, even, I mentioned earlier, I did a lot of work with BP. BP is an energy company. So is Exxon. They're radically different cultures. And so the work that you would do in each of those to evolve them is going to be different. Walmart and Amazon, right? What's fascinating is you look at their business strategies in some way. Walmart, you go back a few years, they were going digital. The world's largest physical retailer was going digital. That's its own cultural evolution, looking at where are they coming from, where are they going to. Amazon, to some extent, was going physical, buying Whole Foods, setting up other things like that. So, part of their evolution was from digital to, to sort of physical retail. Again, different kind of cultural evolution, even from where they were to where they're going. And I think this is that's the hard work of culture is the really connecting it to your business strategy and understanding what kind of culture supports a business strategy. And then, how do you achieve that through my advocacy is around through the culture operating system.
1: Great. That's great advice. It's a lot to, to think about. Another question that I had for you is you'd use the
0: term next practices instead of best practices. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I'll say this dramatically for effect. I probably wasted a huge number of people's time for 10 years trying to apply everything that Jack Welsh had done at GE. I became an HR person in 2000 when GE and their people practices were at a height bottom 10%, the bell curve, the nine box grid, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, best practices are a rear view mirror. And, and the reality is when you look at the forces that are shaping business today, whether that's AI, it's the demographic changes, it's climate change, it's there's a whole host of things. We are, going into a very different, much faster-paced future. And as HR professionals, we should be looking at what are the practices that are going to equip us for that future, not what are the practices that made people in the past successful. And I think that's... I love engaging with other CHROs because they're very thoughtful. They have so much experience. And I love brainstorming around problems that we're confronting. And, and I'll give you an example of next practice. And again, it probably worked in their culture. But if you think about the Netflix culture deck and a whole series of practices that they put into place, those were radically different than anyone had done before. And no one would have said that's best practice. Many of those have now emerged as best practice. But what are the next versions of the Netflix culture deck? What are the different ways that we should be oriented towards the future? That's why I always say, let's focus on next practices, not best practices.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's getting back to your one of your principles, agility. You know, yeah. It's just being able to move. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with the term singularity. Things are just, I think it's data. I mean, it's, everything's changing. It's like every 18 months, it's like doubling.
0: So. Well, it's incredible. It's, yeah, I referenced Jack Welch. If you think in the 90s, Jack Welch said, high-performing companies are ones where the pace of change externally is faster than the pace of change internally. You then or sorry, the pace of change internally is faster than the pace of change externally. You fast forward, pun pun intended, to 2017, I think it was, Tom Friedman's latest book called Thank You for Being Late. And he talked about the supernova of acceleration. And he was pointing to things like technology, demographics, climate change, that are creating this sort of supernova of acceleration. And Jack Welch was already recognizing how hard it was to stay ahead of kind of what was going on in the world 20 years ago. And now being able to move that quickly, that's the challenge and the opportunity for us going forward.
1: Yeah. If you could go back in time and give yourself professional advice or or even just for anybody, what kind of advice would you give?
0: What a perfect segue from our conversation just now, because I would say embrace agile practices from the start. This notion of creating an MVP, engaging Others in co creating, testing something with the business. I think I spent too much of my career trying to build programs and roll them out or do certain things and cascade them. And if you just sort of think about that language, it's like something, or even the notion of we're the center of excellence and then we're going to cascade it. And I think that over time, I've learned to be more agile engage in thought partnership, bring other stakeholders in. And I, I think that's professional advice. I definitely wish I had then and, and would give now.
1: Mm. And, and what was the best advice someone ever gave you?
0: Two pieces of advice that are related. So early on, when I transitioned into HR, I read like a maniac, like any book I could, I was just trying to learn as much as I I could. And I guess I developed, I'll sort of call it the book learning version of what I thought was the right thing to do. And then I would be engaging with the business unit that I was supporting and things like that, and essentially trying to force them to do things. And at one point, when I was in that sort of frustrating exercise, I mean, what I wanted to do was the right thing, but they were kind of resisting. And I remember... One colleague of mine who was a very seasoned HR person kind of was observing this dynamic. And she just said to me, and it was sort of in a quiet way, she said, you know what? Why don't you go where the energy is? And she noted that there was one team in the technology group that seemed receptive. And it was such a brilliant piece of advice. And I actually, instead of trying to sort of create a program that everyone had to do, I started to just work with that team. And then over time, they saw it was working and it became sort of demand led rather than supply led, if you would. So there was that piece of advice. And then actually around the same time, another colleague, I was actually coaching uh, a leader and trying to, again, persuade them to do something. And and she said to me, sometimes you have to let the car crash happen. And she, and, she said, and she said, like, you see where they're heading, you see what's going to happen and you're trying to prevent it. And she's like, they're not ready to listen you actually got to let them hit the wall and then they'll be receptive. And so those were a uh, couple of pieces of advice.
1: That's great advice. The first one I love, I mean, it's just essentially mental judo, which I think is uh, it's it's good advice. And the car crash, it's just so true. Sometimes people, they need to hit rock bottom. It's almost like a, an alcoholic or a drug addict. They're not going to do anything until they've been to the bottom. That's um, absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's great advice. You've worked, I'm a big quote guy. I love quotes. I think they speak, they really sum up things uh, a lot better than I can often. And you talked about these eight principles of culture and obviously leadership is uh, very important. It's one of them. I'm going to run a quote by you that I really like, and I'd love to get your perspective on it. Okay. Sure. All right. right. Leaders have greater impact whispering from a valley than someone without a voice does shouting from a mountaintop.
0: Wow. Wow. I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to respond to that with a story, if you'll... That would be perfect.
1: And you know what? Well, then we'll end on a story because it's like George Costanza, we got to go out on a high note. Let's bring it on.
0: Sure. So probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my career was a guy named Tom Glosser, who was the general counsel of Reuters America in 1994 when I started to do work as an external lawyer. And he ran a seven-person legal department and he hired me in to be lawyer number eight in his seven-person legal department. Tom went on to be CEO of Reuters America. He's the person who had me move from law into HR. When he became CEO of Reuters, he moved me over to London, put me in a role which in a million years I would never give myself now as a, uh, it was way bigger than I should have had. And, and went on, to, he was CEO of Thomson Reuters. He's now the lead director for Morgan Stanley, spectacular business leader. But it's funny, when he moved me over to London, he arranged for me to meet with the chairman of Reuters at the time, who was a guy named Sir Christopher Hogg. And he had been a legendary business person and and a very wise, wise man. And I was meeting with him and he said to me, you're in a much more senior role than you've ever been in before. You're going to be interacting with people like the CEO, other members of the executive team, members of the board. And he said, your temptation is going to be to orient up because this is new to you and it's going to feel exciting. And he said, as an HR leader, What's critical is that you orient out towards the organization and not up. And he said, never underestimate how much a shadow a leader can cast or how much light they can shed. And it was really a powerful statement. And it's funny, I think of that often. And the quote that you gave, I I often talk about with leaders being attuned to their voice and saying, remember, a leader's whisper is someone else's shout and getting them to sort of understand the, the signaling that they can do, the impact and power of the words that they have, frankly, even more powerful, the actions. And so that's my my reflection on that quote.
1: That's awesome. And, and I know we were going to end on that, but I have to add to this because it piggybacks what you're saying. So I have a client, uh, a massive client, 30,000 uh, person company, and one of the departments that brought me in, this guy that runs a 40 or $50 million business, they had a big uh, webinar conference that, that I was invited to. And one of their clients, one of their other clients was actually speaking. So looking at this webinar, or that webinar, what's it called? You're on um, one of these Zooms. I'm sure, There's yeah. There's a, a couple hundred people on there from this client. And the company that's pitching, they have their videos on so you can see who they are. And the other people, who's my client, there's only one person whose camera you can see. And it's actually the gentleman that runs the entire business. So I sent him a text. I said, hey, by the way, in case you didn't know this, your camera is on. And he says, I know. I'm trying to show this company. He's the client, mind you. He's like trying to show them some respect. And I thought that was, that's a leader. Here and and other people, I'm thinking, wow, I, I got to put my camera
0: on now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Know? Like that is a leader. That was great leadership. And I think that echoes the same sentiment of what you're talking about right here.
0: Wow. That's, I like that story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. You'll tell it much better though. So please reply. <laughs> Not <it>. at <laughs> all. You're a great, you're a great storyteller. I've been <laughs> you know, enjoying, uh, you know. enjoying your uh, stories. <laughs> so
1: I got, man, JRD, <laughs> So I'm going to formally invite you to come back on again. There's so many other questions that I had. I, I try to be uh, mindful of, of your time. It, today was it was so nice to kind of hear your story. I can't wait to see the movie. By the way, be coming, <laughs> yeah, be coming out. I feel like you've got a couple books in your next life. You know, one on the just the the love life and the family, and then we've got one on the operating system and the user manual and. There are just so many pearls of knowledge that are coming out of this conversation. Those eight principles are fantastic, and I just want to regurgitate them back and make sure I get them because I think other people, if they were like me, they were like hanging on every word. But purpose, leadership, space—I think it was yeah—the uh, four of uh, citizenship. That's important. Connection, which is something I'm very partial to, obviously, with my company. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Made me very happy. Agility, being able to move at the times. Obviously, the talent itself. And the platform, which is a a, a unique one also that I bet gets overlooked in a lot of places. So did I get those right? You got them. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing. And so much more. This is going to be one that people are going to have to listen to at least twice, at minimum. (laughs) to figure out what the hell I'm saying. (laughs) So again, I I really, I I do want to thank you. You definitely delivered. The pressure obviously
0: didn't get to you. (laughs) I want to thank you for making today happen. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time and being such a, a gracious host. Really enjoyed the conversation, Adam. It's a beautiful thing. All right, make it a great day.
1: Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up-to-date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.